Momus, the publication, and Momus, the podcast, <laughs> are both um, funded by advertising. And that's a revenue model that's under quite a bit of strain right now as museums, galleries, and schools are closed. Uh, there are some options that we're trying to entertain, but really this is a moment for readers and listeners who appreciate the work we're doing uh, to show up. We would be so grateful if you would take a look at the Patreon campaign that we're running, Momus Art uh, on Patreon, you can submit as little as a dollar or five dollars per month to to make a real impact and uh, to help me pay Lauren. Hey, Lauren, <laughs> <laughs> you got to keep your croissant fund, yeah. <laughs> Feels vaguely threatening. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'm not alone in the the freelance uh, world with having all of my work suddenly disappear over a period of, um, you know, a week. And I'm very grateful, not only to, uh, to continue to be paid by Sky, but also <laughs> that Momus continues to publish and that there's still, um, yeah, still a desire to engage in these questions, even though perhaps the context for them has changed irreparably. So yeah. yeah, the support that you can provide means everything. Please join us at uh, patreon.com slash momusart. And thanks for listening. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. So, Sky, <laughs> uh, we made a little deal before we started that I was going to ask you a question when this started, and that you could ask me any question. Oh, my that. mind is so blank. Okay, hit me. My pre-prepared question was, "What are you reading?" It's not as salacious as it should be, but I am genuinely curious. Hmm. Uh, I am plucking through uh, 41 False Starts by Janet Malcolm for the third time. Just it brings me great comfort to see the artistry of her her narrative journalism. And then a friend sent me a book about the tragedy of the whale ship Essex. That other classic <laughs> about a boat was antagonized by a whale. Well, indeed, Moby Dick ends right where the whale starts to really pick up some steam. Um, <laughs> gathers. Oh my God, so this is the sequel then. Well, in a sense, but this is, I mean, this is more jo- journalistically oriented, but it's uh, ragingly <laughs> good. And it has nothing to do with anything that scares me in my active day-to-day life right now. I don't mean to be unoriginal, but I'm also curious what you're reading. Uh Uh-oh. Fuck, somebody's just come to the door. (laughs) What a ball ache. Will you give me one... Should I... (laughs) What a total ache in the balls. (laughs) Give me one second. I'm going to let it keep running. Keep running. Vamp. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I'll just sit here and think about whales. Bonjour. Of course there was nobody there. Who would come to my door (laughs) in a time like this? (laughs) The impropriety. What are you reading, Lauren? I have been reading science fiction almost exclusively since since being locked up, and I've been reading Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed, and it's really... uh, 
Yeah, it's really beautifully kind of eye-opening and disturbing at the same time. It gives a good perspective on on human nature. And uh, what it does do is throws into sharp relief how these conversations have been happening forever, that this fear, like, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about people who suffer with anxiety saying like, that actually during this period, they've been feeling kind of less anxious or they've been feeling okay. And you have that realization because it's like, oh yeah, I have been preparing uh, my whole life for the end of the world and now it's come. So here I am ready to go. <laughs> like there's a, there's a strange actualization in this moment, I think, for people who are really into science fiction. Mm-hmm. It's like, I've modeled this out in so many ways. (laughs) This explains so much about your cool, self-possessed disposition. (laughs) (laughs) Really, I just lost my absolute shit when somebody rang my doorbell. (laughs) (laughs) Let's shift on. Who did you talk to for this week's episode? So this week, we're going to be hearing from Alessandra Bava, who is an architect and a writer, and a teacher, and a theorist, and all around a uh, very interesting guy. And yeah, it's the first architect that we've had grace our stage here. Sky, mm. Sky let one slip through. <laughs> I do like to keep a firm clasp on this gate against architect. No, I mean, why, why is it taking us so long? Maybe there's a bit of antagonism between architecture and art. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think that that is definitely present. I mean, we were talking about how some of my mo- like earlier professional experiences in museums were seeing the way uh, the curatorial staff would kind of clench up when an architect would be mentioned or <laughs> if somebody wanted to do a project with an architect or like the building's architect was coming in and there was these kinds of concerns that uh, as soon as the architect comes in, all of the art is going to disappear because they hate art because it distracts from their art, which is the building. Mm. Um, but Alessandro is is not that at all. In fact, uh, the majority of his practice, I think, is all about thinking about ways of making art sort of sing in spaces and allowing people to come together with art either individually or together and experiencing it in interesting ways and ways that are uh, faithful to the art's production. So he's a special kind of architect, let's say that. So we met in London, um, and then subsequently we both ended up leaving London for the kind of relative remove of myself. I moved to Belgium, and he moved to Naples, Italy, where he grew up. And I guess he had decided that he wanted to remove himself from the ever-widening maw of capital and optimization of London and move back to Naples to lead a life more of uh, reflection and engagement with ideas. Um, And so he is, yeah, he's in Naples when we spoke about last week and he had been in isolation in his studio where he's also living for about two weeks, I think at the point that we spoke. Wow. Wow. That's, that's intense. Did, what were there, well, I suppose we'll hear, but were hallmarks of uh, anxiety rippling through that conversation? Did he seem particularly concerned? Actually, I think of anybody I've spoken to, he was sort of the least, well, not least concerned, but the most sort of chill about the whole thing. Maybe that is 
that is to do with what we were talking about in terms of like people who really like science fiction or people who are uh, who are kind of like pre-modeling this collapse. Mm. Um, and I think that as he talks about it in the interview, like his remove from London, where he was working with a collective called Air that was really invested in thinking about domestic architecture, but also thinking about the way that the domestic sphere has been capitalized in terms of sharing economies. Uh, with that collective and living in London, I think was living and breathing that reality and, and decided at a certain point that he just needed to get out of it. Um, and so to have already performed that remove uh-huh. yeah, a few years ago and then to spend that time um, yeah, seeing what that kind of removal actually means and then for this to happen, you almost feel as though you were in the right place at the right time. I get that vibe from him definitely. And it's, it is, it is a way that I've been feeling a lot lately too, that I did a lot of work around removing myself and slowing down at the time was very difficult and it was not necessarily my own decisions that led to it. But now I feel very grateful for having done that work slowly over a period of years rather than being somebody who perhaps has to do that immediately right you're just suddenly in your in your home right like breaking with no one to network with (laughs) 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 i have a goddamn hand to shake (laughs) i think one of the other things that was really nice about our conversation was that when we got to the end of it we actually stopped talking about the COVID-19 and the situation and certain kinds of anxieties. And we ended up talking about art. Mm. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) How astonishing. (laughs) Yeah, it was. It was astonishing. And it was, uh, yeah, it was great. How novel. (laughs) Okay, well, I can't wait to hear this. Um, I introduce Alessandro Bava and Lauren. Tell me about where you are. You're you're in Naples at the moment. How long have you been there for? Yes. Um, well, so I've been here for the last uh, two and a half years, almost. Okay. Yeah, I moved back here after you know many many years in London. Yeah. I decided to move back here, which is where I'm from. And yeah, I mean, it was kind of a, a bit of an escape from that whole world and reality. Brussels always has always felt to me I've lived here for almost four years now but it's mm-hmm. always felt like a great place to escape like I feel like you could fake your death and move to Belgium and absolutely would no one would know <laughs> that you were here <laughs> yes completely I mean you know I very much felt the same way about coming back here mm. in a way I kind of felt like I changed uh timeline a little bit uh it feels like you're in a different kind of like space time continuum. exactly uh, yeah being, being back here completely. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I made this decision. Also, I was in a, in a moment of change because I was, I mean, we know each other from like when I was part of this uh, collective, mm-hmm. which uh, called AIR, which then kind of we stopped working together. It was four of us. And so I was kind of wanting to start something new on my own, specifically because, because I was frustrated with, you know, my, my work with the collective was very much about a certain specific uh, political and economic reality of London right. and of, you know, a certain part of the Western world. 
yeah. um, because we reacted to like the sharing economy and, and these other things. And, you know, increasingly because the, the, this kind of a, a critical thinking practice uh, led me to kind of this exhaustion in a way because I was completely surrounded by this and I was, and I was hyper aware of all the kind of shortcomings of this system. Yeah. Um, and so I decided to come back here, which felt a bit like, you know, a province of the empire very much mm-hmm. and a place where actually that whatever system is in place and, and uh, very much runs the scenario in places like London or New York or other places here felt kind of like a bit left behind, which felt like it offered more possibilities for other things to emerge. How has that been feeling for you over the past, say, month? Yeah, well, you know, it's like it's. I've been going through this kind of like funny feeling because, uh, I mean, definitely my life here, you know, I haven't traveled as much as I used to. And I, mm. you know, got this studio by myself. It's very close to a, it's by a beach. So it's very conducive to like a solitary <laughs> and contemplative <laughs> work. Yeah. Which is like most mostly what I've been doing is writing and like doing projects. So, you know, my, my usual work, but it's very solitary. So in the last month, I just felt like, you know, it feels more right to be here now, paradoxically, than it, than it felt like, you know, a year ago when I, or two years ago when I came here. Yeah, that's so funny. I feel the exact same way. I was thinking the solitary life that you realize is intensely solitary when it is like following all of the social distancing guidelines. Yeah, completely. <laughs> so. I mean, there were so many memes. There are a lot of like artists who were sharing. I know. You know, about like, oh, this is quarantine. Like, you know, I've been living like this, <laughs> this for like the past. <laughs> yeah, this is just my life. So yeah. it very much feels that way. And for me, that's the ad- there is an added let's say, symbolic in a way element. I live in, uh, in my studios <laughs> or like, or I work in my house. I don't know. Um, it's a very particular place in Naples. It's a neighborhood called Posilipo, which uh, mm. come, uh, you know, its name comes from like the ancient Greek project, the meaning that it's a place for healing. So it's a place mm. for, that since the since Greek times was like a healing place. So it's actually even during Roman times was a holiday place and people came here during like epidemics or wars <laughs> in other places. I've been very kind of into this uh, this aspect of being here that it feels like it's ingrained in the landscape, that it's healing, uh. but even more so now. Because now I feel like it almost feels like it's, a, it's the appropriate way to live in this kind of context. It's like you were already living on Magic Mountain. <laughs> yeah let's let's think that <laughs> now also you know my friend uh my friend sent me um yesterday like a, a good friend of mine sent me a, a quote from uh, a book that spoke, speaks about the the spanish flu which uh, happened in 1918 more or less 100 years ago and and there's a quote that speaks about le corbusier you know the swiss architect mm-hmm. and the, the fact that he was kind of sitting in his Parisian apartment, even though he, had, he didn't have a degree in architecture yet, but he was kind of like still already, let's say, uh, dreaming up what the, what the world would be after after this, this major, major traumatic event. I think the, the death toll at the end was 50 million people, which is an immense amount of people, especially for the world back then, which is obviously yeah. le- was obviously less populated. And one of the major um, things that contributed to this, the spread of that epidemic was the fact that the poor health conditions of the working class. This was actually one of the major causes of, of why the, the death 
toll was so high. I mean, together with many other things, of course, healthcare systems, whatever, were not modern like we know them today and so on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and that made me think that, of course, Le Corbusier, one of his major, one of the major things of the modernism in general, and Le Corbusier in particular, is, is precisely, precisely tackling the housing of the working class and how to make improvements in that sense. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to sort of like embody, you know, or like you get inspired by that type of thinking because, you know, it's in this time of like trauma, tra- collective trauma that people who do our work in a way are, should be more hard at work. In a way, yeah, you know, I think we also inhabit some kind of front line in a very much more comfortable and and very, let's say, uh, you know, we, you know, we're lucky, obviously, not to be in the, the actual front lines of the of a health emergency. But right, in, in right, the same right. way, I think we are in the front, in the kind of intellectual and kind of energetic front lines. You know, it, 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 I feel like a purpose in that. You know, like I feel like mm-hmm. you know. For example, my work as an architect, as an intellectual, deals with like the idea of the f- forms of life, or like how to inhabit. That's kind of the baseline of like uh, of, of my work, and, and many people who deal with, let's say, architecture and, and issues of inhabitation and so on. So you know, th- times like this really require us to let's say adapt to a situation and to kind of find ways to understand it. So yeah. in a way, I just feel like you know. Uh, I very much feel a sense of responsibility in a way. I was recently into a big chat with a lot of Italian artists. And, uh, you know, a lot of people feel like, you know, right now is not the time to speak for us and they find it hard. And um, a lot of people find it hard because it's a very traumatic and difficult moment. And there is people, obviously, there is, is, uh, you know, people dying close to you. Uh, You know, it's a very strange situation, disruption of our daily life and so on. But in a way, it does feel like... uh, for us, let's say, cultural producers or people who, intellectual workers, <laughs> you know, there is this kind of, uh, I think, sense of, you know, wanting to to do our part in a way. Was there a moment recently when you clearly realized that everything was changing or that everything needs to change? Was it something that you read or a conversation that you had? I mean, this can be in relation to the pandemic, but I think it sounds like these are also already thoughts that you'd been having like through your progression of moving back to Italy and you know it very much felt like there was something a kind of an era that was coming to an end I think a lot of people had this very clear clear uh feeling I mean for me it very much started when I came back here honestly like when I decided to leave uh you know this kind of a London hyper neoliberal context you know, yeah. it, it really, it, and you know, because my work was, I was so invested in understanding what that context was and what what were its sort of uh, limits and uh, and problems. You know, yeah. and and I and and then I spent the last two years actually unraveling those thoughts and like trying to really understand what what what, what was it about. And then I, at some point, I had really a big switch because I, I started really feeling like this is this whatever system is in place. It just cannot go on, and and we need to start thinking of of uh, of another of an alternative somehow. We need to start putting our efforts and talents and imagination and intelligence towards imagining an alternative. You know, recently I was speaking to, um, or you know, I I saw this announcement for the for the German pavilion at the Biennale, at the Architectural Biennale, which is of course now moved to mm-hmm. uh, I think August, and. Um, 
you know, I didn't know who was behind it. And I was just kind of very fascinated because the title of the, of the project was 2038. So, mm-hmm. you know, I simply a date in the future. And, uh, and this, you know, this was announced before the real start of like the pandemic. And, you know, one of the premises yeah. of this pavilion was in a sort of like a hyperstition type of thinking was, was that, um, you know, they're, they're, they kind of anticipated some kind of like disruptive event there in the in the beginning of, of the 2020s that would kind of like be a wake up call to change some things, you know, and kind of like I was really attracted to that because this is the, the type of thinking that I've been kind of trying to engage with. You know, yeah. I, I increasingly I was very dissatisfied with, with like the kind of political and economic reality of, of the, the world around me when this kind of the pandemic started. I think a lot of people felt very ambivalent about about its kind of implications. Besides the obvious health implica- implications, and uh, you know, which are which are uh, let's say the big the big thing on on the, on the agenda at the moment, but you know, the implications in terms of like the changes that it brings about and the possibility for the the, the kind of treme- tremendous possibility for change that it brings about and how we need to size this possibility and actually be active. Part of me always wants to come to the part of the conversation about disaster capitalism, this idea that uh, this is going to allow for a lot of fundamental rights to be taken away and a lot of very disturbing abuses of power. I don't want to linger on that question, but I do wonder if these are worries that you share. Yes. Well, you know, it's funny because I was having this conversation with a friend uh, the other day. And she said, you know, it's a time, yes, disaster capitalism, but it's also perhaps a time of disaster socialism, for example. <laughs> you know, a lot of the, the measures that, that have been taken are very much in that direction. I mean, never in my lifetime I've seen in such a big way, let's say, politics going back to be, let's say, something that drives the economy. You know, let's not forget, we, in our lifetime, I think probably for the first time we saw since, let's say, the democracy or modern democracy, we saw entrepreneurs going into power. You know, this is this is unprecedented. I mean, in Italy, we had Berlusconi for 20 years, who was an entrepreneur who was running the country like like an enterprise. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, people people have fought for building what we call today democracy or what is left of it. And we see and in this kind of situation of collective emergency that is also, a, a, it's leveling in a way, or it's leveling our collective experience. It's not leveling it to, to the se- in the sense that, of course, wealthier people have a much easier time than poor people mm-hmm. who are having a very, very hard time. We need, uh, let's say, good political responses in, in, the, in this context. And, and, you know, one of the big things is like the front line of this emergency is the healthcare system. Yeah, and you know, which is very much a legacy of the welfare state. Yes, you know, and 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 the people who struggle to build that idea, and today we see that as like the center of the conversation globally. My first uh, response in terms of like something that is closer, directly closer to my to my work, was the question of working from home and like labor conditions. Mm-hmm. Up until now, working from home was kind of the, the privilege almost of like a very small class of intellectual workers. Hmm. So I think now this this is becoming a generalized generalized condition. I think it kind of brings back into the center of the conversation the question of housing and the right to housing, uh, which is of mm-hmm. course a central question in architecture. And uh, it seems that now it kind of in a, in a very large scale way way becomes again, let's say, the center of like 
questions of the surrounding labor practices. So, mm-hmm. you know, so that's and kind human of some, rights. and human rights. Yeah, exactly. I mean, housing, housing is a human right. You know, once, once with my collective, we, we kind of like did a, this exhibition in, at the Schiedlich in Amsterdam, where we had, we, let's say, restored an artwork by Martha Rosler, which was housing, mm-hmm. housing is a human right. In this, let's say, the current crisis and, and also going forward, like working from home is obviously something that benefits, uh, let's say, sustainability. Um, so in a way, we might be uh, becoming, in a very large scale, more accustomed to this, to this question. Uh, and to this How practice. does working from home benefit sustainability? Because people, uh, you know, travel less simply, and and consume okay. less, and and uh, but of course, on the other hand, brings about a lot of other questions, which which mean, for example, like now in a in a in a market a market based economy surrounding housing, mm-hmm. you know, the access to housing is 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 a bit of a complicated issue. So if your house becomes also your place of of labor, this completely radically changes the status of the home. And its place in the in the market as a commodity. So I think mm-hmm. this is like actually a, a major shift. If this continues to be kind of a widespread reality, like working from home, it, mm-hmm. it the let's say the the, the 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 wild the wild wild west of speculative real estate globally <laughs> needs to needs to really kind of change and needs to be once again looked at with a, with perhaps like a more public interest. Similarly to like what we see in the twenties, back then the question was housing the working class. You know there was a massive amount of the working class that lived in slums in like unhealthy places, and and the question became a public health question. Like we need to give these people better housing and better life, not because the capitalist owners of the factories were, you know, generously wanting to give the workers something better. It it became a public collective problem that we have to to address this. And I think similarly, I think if working from home be- becomes a widespread reality, we need to think again about housing in a radically, radically different way in terms of design, in terms of space, but in terms of its status as a commodity and what, it's, what, is, what is its place for, you know, for the collective uh, good. I've been wondering, because I know you, you run this magazine called EcoCore, which looks mm. at ecological uh, themes, even what you were just saying about, uh, you know, housing, reasonable housing being an important thing to provide people with, not because of some kind of greater kindness, but because of some kind of pending health emergency. It would seem that that was not an emergency that was being felt enough with regards to climate change or with regards to ecological disaster. Um, And I can imagine it must be very frustrating to work specifically on issues to do with ecology, but to not see any real kind of efforts towards taking that issue seriously. And then how cathartic it must be maybe now to see, uh, or maybe frustrating to see how changes can be enacted so very quickly. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was it was very clear from whoever looks at ecology and and, uh, and sustainability that it it very much required this like global action, yeah, almost all at once. So it was kind of like a weird feeling of wishing for for something bad to happen, almost because it was kind of like the only way. I mean, you know, I remember like even last year, like this kind of sense of 
of uh, you know so many cultural productions were about this kind of apocalypse and and kind mm-hmm. of world ending because of the climate crisis as you know as we know uh, you know it's it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism <laughs> in the last 30 years we've been we've been under a very specific economic system which is called neoliberalism it's very specific mm-hmm. it's not just capitalism as a kind of blanket term it's a very specific set of you know norms and and uh, economic processes that that were governing the the show so you know at, which were very much let's say predicated on uh, on uh, on models that didn't account for the finitude of like resources and the kind of like uh, fragility of of the ecosystems so it mm-hmm. it was kind of clear that uh, you know that there were there was no way change was was going to happen if something drastic uh, occurred. So it's, mm-hmm. it's strange because now, I mean, a lot of people are, you know, posting the videos of dolphin going back to ports and things like that. And, you know, like the, the, the pollution getting, bet- getting better because uh, yeah. the economy has completely stopped. Yeah. Of course, we're going forward. We, you know, I think we need to just find, we need to find an economic system that doesn't run on the complete exploitation of, um, of resources and people. I mean, this is the the only eco- ecological way forward that is that is possible. So, do you have hope that that's possible? To, I mean, does this situation give you a certain amount of hope? The situation gives me a certain amount of hope, just in terms of like because it's like an, an uncertain scenario. Right. It feels more blank slate in a way yeah. than than it was three months ago. You know, yeah, three months ago the machine was fully running. And like there was nothing stopping it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in a way, now it feels like okay, this kind of came to a, st- a halt, and you know now there is a chance to imagine an alternative. Really, I mean, and also you know it is very much apparent if you like research, if you're like invested and work in this in this field, there is so much knowledge actually in the world mm-hmm. for 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 changing things politically, economically. For example, recently I had a meeting with a, a guy working with uh, biocompatible materials. And what he does was, that mean? So it's materials that are made not of polymers or things derived from plastic. I see. Okay. But are based on things that are derived from other more biocompatible sources. I see. And, you know, he was saying, like, we actually have the, you know, the technical replacements for almost, for almost everything, even fuels, mm-hmm. even, like, any sort of, like, polymer. In fact, he was saying that more, the hardest thing to substitute is nylon. But there is even hmm. ways of, of substituting nylon with the biocompatible materials. Hmm. And he's like, you know, we're ready to do this and this is completely there. But, you know, there is things stopping it. Like, you know, there is a large scale economy surrounding oil that is impossible yeah. to beat just like from switch from one day to the next because the, the economic machine is not pu- it's pushing forward. You know, it's just kind of uh, automatic, really. So, yeah. it's, you know, we have the knowledge, but we, we cannot make the switch. So I feel like now all these switches are more available, let's say, than they yeah. were three months ago. You know, again, we were saying like with a friend, like it might go left or right, almost yeah. quite literally, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but at least now it feels like our generation can start feeling more hopeful and more, more empowered also to, to write the, the next page in a way. What do you think that empowerment looks like? Like I'm thinking about you describing this, this um, project that you did with the Air Collective mm. at the Siedlik and thinking about how, you know, basically how you've been contributing to discourse 
uh, and the art world up mm-hmm. until now. Mm-hmm. What do you see that contribution looking like from here on in? Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting that you asked that because, you know, basically in the last two years, I kind of like stopped a lot of things and I put right. an end to a lot of things because I feel, I feel like my previous work was quite cynical and it was forced mm. to be cynical by the by the the context and the reality that I was dealing with. Yeah. And, you know, and since I made the switch to wanting to, to kind of like, uh, in a kind of lone way, in a way, like imagine or like find the threads also in history of people that were imagining alternatives to their scenario. Because also the scenario that we have been living in is not just the last 30 years. It's like a longer timeline. So, <laughs> right. so you find along the way, I mean, in fact, I was thinking about a couple of things, you know, like I've been studying like architects like Bernard Rudofsky or Rudolf Schindler, people that were very much at odds with their time and they were very critical of things like industrialization and so on. And mm-hmm. they kind of ran and had this kind of utopian intellectual and, and kind of like uh, artistic practice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, I've been trying to kind of uh, look back at that because I do feel that that type of knowledge, that type of attitude is going to be increasingly needed of you know yeah. the capacity of, of imagining alternative ways of living i guess i i understand contemporary art also being some kind of engine uh and form of collective intellect to understand and shape our present so in a mm-hmm. way i feel like this type of like more speculative architectural practice is more at home in in, in art uh, yeah. than actually in the real architectural practice because in, in you know, an architect, an architectural practice as a, co- as a commercial <laughs> practice needs to deal with very much with the hardcore reality realities of its context. It's very hard to find a space to imagine, let's say, alternatives or to do these kind of speculations, uh, also intellectuals or intellectual or, or let's say artistic speculations. So, for you, the contemporary art world has been sort of a place of freedom within your craft, I suppose, mm-hmm. or within your yeah, location. Completely. I mean, completely. On the other hand, I do. It's it's in a kind of more pragmatic way. I, I I also feel I also was very much attracted by my peers, artists, and their thinking. You know, yeah, and their practice. You know, I always felt very, even though I I came from a let's say a different perspective, a different background. I mean, I always had an interest in it, but more more so than just an interest, I had a an active let's say intellectual engagement with with the practice of, of artists and their way of seeing. Mm-hmm. Today, uh, my work, let's say, in contact with artists is often comes, you know, as a special practice that goes alongside the work of artists. So it's it's kind of come to take this uh, this weird niche of like designing spaces for art. Right. Then I guess the question is, and I know this is this is this kind of question that I think people are thinking about a lot this week which is about having to move away from from places of physical mm-hmm. engagement mm-hmm. And into digital engagement and how kind of i know for me personally i find that very uh disturbing mm-hmm. you know like i want yeah, to visit a museum I'm, i don't yes. care to to be toured <laughs> to be around by a camera yes. so for somebody who works very specifically in that realm of physical engagement with art, how how do you see that going forward? Yeah, no, that's this is the biggest question at the moment. At the moment, I'm working on this big project of designing a, a big exhibition. Mm. So you know, and and, it, and it's <laughs> happening sort of like I, we don't know, but it's happening sometimes in October. So 
probably okay. all, you know likelihood in still in this sort of situation more or less yeah and you know i've been very, so invested in in thinking about the experience of art as an embodied experience as an yes. as an experience that has to do with space has to do with uh, you know the physical uh, reality of things the mm -hmm. you know there is also a spatial experience you know i've been really researching that and really very very invested with that in fact you know also trying to push how yeah how art is experienced how those spaces look like frankly i'm like you a bit um uh <laughs> not nervous about the situation because you know there is there is not something to be nervous about but also because i think there is going to be such an eagerness to go back to to real experiences even more after yeah, after point. this yeah. period of uh, of emergency so i spent a lot of time writing and discussing this kind of issue of uh, you know embodied experience against this kind of mediated experience of like screens and so on Mm -hmm. because that's so much the specificity of architecture you know it's something that you actually need to experience with your body has to do with like a sense of like a form of care a form of like generosity and so on mm -hmm. so so you know i very much think that actually it's, it's gonna come back stronger and there's gonna be actually more awareness of like the the, the spatial aspect of uh, experiencing art because i mean art is of course an intellectual experience is also an emotional experience and it's mm -hmm. an emotional and intellectual experience that really is very, very much mediated by space, by three-dimensional yeah. space and by place, sense of place, sense of embodiment and so on. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, it was very eerie to see like all the, the kind of uh, the art fair that was happening, Art Basel, which was happening online right. with this right, very strange, right, right. <laughs> you know, like photoshopped <laughs> reality <laughs> of like a blank wall with a bench. It's almost like a placeholder for this idea that art is about experience and like contemplation. Right. It's like, like, fake, it's like faking that. Yeah, you could be here. There's a bench. Like, if you <laughs> imagine being here, you know, it's like, <laughs> but you know, it's like, but it's, it's the same white wall for every single artwork. I mean, in, you know, yeah. in, in a sense, of course, we, we, we all very much know that, you know, the, 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 the art world is also a world, it's also a market. It's also a market of commodities and, you know, that somehow have their, a life of, of their own. Um, and in fact, I mean, if, if anything, it, it makes you feel, you know, I've done a couple of projects within art fairs. You know, when I was doing them, I was always trying to sort of, through, let's say, the, the design of a space to provide a critical reading of the context, mm -hmm. like spatially, let's say. And like, mm -hmm. it increasingly felt that, you know, art fairs were kind of like more and more useless like Amazon-like, where mm -hmm. you, you, know, you browse and you see objects as commodities and you mm -hmm. can like, interact with them in that specific way. And then everything else actually goes back to being a kind of a completely other uh, type of experience with a completely different meaning, perhaps. You mean because it becomes more of like a, a social... Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think it's kind of reinforced. You know, once a few years ago, I think in 2017, I wrote this article that that I called "Art Architecture," which mm -hmm. <laughs> was a very corny name. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I like I like titles that kind of declare immediately what what things are about. <laughs> sure. Um, so so yeah, in the end, I was you know back then I was really fascinated by 
the work of uh, Reza ha- uh, Abdo, mm-hmm. which is this Iranian-American theater director who worked mostly in LA, I think, in New York, mm-hmm. if, I'm, if, I, if I'm not uh, wrong. But, um, you know, he, he was doing, he, one of his last works was this massive, let's say, perform, theatrical performance in the streets of the meatpacking district. And I use that example as a form of like kind of institution, future institution that is completely rooted in experience and not in storing objects, you know, because I mean, at the end of the day, I feel like in many ways, artworks have different meanings, but also they, they kind of um, hold information in a way, but like increasingly in contemporary art, certain artists work more in this, in this way that, you know, they are, let's say, working with with ways of thinking, ways of seeing. So I feel like that type of more immersive experience of like a theatrical performance was an interesting way of, in a way, a provocation to imagine like, uh, you know, future institution, art, cultural institutions and how they might work. I'm curious, when you talk about sort of embodiment or experiences of mm-hmm. space, it seems to me, and maybe I'm not right, but it seems to me like you're thinking about one person in a space, like mm-hmm. an individual experience, mm-hmm. say. And I think uh, within the art world, there is so much of a kind of interest or at least an institutional interest in bringing as many people as possible together mm-hmm. for whatever reason, reason, be that a genuine interest in collective experience or be that an interest in like funding and admission numbers and mm-hmm. revenue in that regard. But the fact that, you know, one can hope that this will blow over and we will be able to come together physically again in in, in the way that we did before, but uh, perhaps we won't. And so mm-hmm. does your thinking have to change or has your thinking always kind of steered towards the idea of one person, or the individual experience? No, I mean, I wasn't. I mean, I wasn't necessarily referring to like individual experiences. In fact, like I think a, 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 a good space is one that can function both with one person or with a crowd. Right. You know, I think this is very much. I mean, in fact, in this exhibition that I'm designing at the moment, there is a big question of that because the the the, the exhibition, the public uh, sort of state exhibition, and it has very different fluxes of people throughout its like lifespan. Let's say. You know, mm-hmm. there is an opening with thousands and thousands of people, but there is also days where there is like four people in the exhibition, you know, right. and it needs to function at both, at both uh, scales. Um, you know, and in the past also I've, I've confronted that, like I've done, you know, projects, for example, like I collaborated once with an artist where, you know, he made a set of paintings and I was, and I designed a very intimate space for them where like it could mm. be visited only by one, two people at a time, even, even though mm. it was in a huge space that I left empty. And I just constructed this small, let's say, space, this kind of, uh, you know, more secluded, uh, intimate space to to experience it. But then in, in this other project, I designed a space that was with these, like, walls, with this large bench that ran around the walls to actually invite for gatherings, to invite for people to sit down, to, to take time, spend time in that space together or, or, you know, in groups and so on. This kind of spatial thinking happens in all kind of scenarios i feel yeah and maybe like this is going to give us the opportunity to explore um to explore further that kind of more individual or sort of isolated experience of art but hopefully still on a on a physical level yeah completely. (laughs) i mean also you know when i face 
what I what I face uh, constantly when I'm installing exhibitions now mm. is that um, you know there are so many canons in installing exhibitions that are so completely irrelevant for today. <laughs> like you know? what? Tell me, like what? Like like at what height you hang a painting? Or like how many right. paintings you can have next to each other? How many? Right. What what can you have next to each other in terms of like an installation with like a sculpture with like how do you? How do you create a spatial experience, essentially, with art, with artworks? Yeah. This is kind of like, you know, it's kind of like a dark art that is not so much spoken about, I feel. And, <laughs> and it's kind of ruled by the weird sort of like, uh, uh, you know, uh, word of mouth kind of traditions that are like, it's very medieval, yeah. you know, it's like this kind of how to install exhibitions. It's like a medieval art that is yes. like uh, for initiated people and it's kind of like passed down in generations of curators and museum yes. directors and it's full yes. of like taboos and it's full yes. of like unspoken rules that constantly I'm, I'm like I come to this with a kind of like an open mind because I actually uh, I don't have that training and I don't have I'm not part of that tradition in a way so all yeah. I know about doing exhibitions is by doing them myself as an artist and spatial pr practitioner right and from other art learning from other artists yeah or just getting the feel of a room like if a, if, yeah, if a completely. room feels good then but it's funny how often like as soon as soon as a room feels good if you were to measure a painting it would probably be like 60 to the center or whatever that rule is yes no i know i mean you know some <laughs> of the rules are kind of rooted in ergonomics <laughs> yes, ergonomics, so, yes. You know, so some of the rules i'm fine by but it, you know we, yeah. like every rule like you know, like like what people say with painting, no, like every rule is meant to be broken, right? With with anything, really, it's like it's yeah. you meant you're meant to know it to be able to break it. So, yeah, you know, even with that, like it's so obviously when you place a painting in a space or an artwork, you know, in a space, it it completely reorganizes the the, the space like one hundred percent. So it's about mm -hmm. kind of like understanding that in almost in terms of like energy flows and like. You know, mm -hmm. it's almost like uh, yeah, it changes completely the charge and the energy of a space, and it's about reading that and not necessarily following canons or you know also because the canons of exhibitions that are are not actually that long long standing. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you look yeah, at yeah, like yeah. fifty years ago, like things were already completely radically different. If you look at a hundred years ago, yes. it was a different world, planet yeah. from what we have today. So, you know, it's very important to not take those. Uh, <laughs> those rules uh you know in the beginning i was understanding this as a sort of like queer practice of like you know yeah. not following the rules because also i've been in situations with the curators or people that were very you know off found very off-putting some of the choices that i made you know? yes yes i found myself often like fighting for against this sort of canon that's how i kind of got uh, a sense of what the canon is by fighting <laughs> by finding <laughs> these kind of walls to, to yeah to, that to sounds like a familiar experience okay let me ask you a, a question just occurred to me if you could um if you could visit any kind of cultural landmark or museum or any place really that usually would be very full but now is completely empty mm. in the world what would it be <laughs> oh god um it's kind of a nice question i mean my friend yesterday told me that she went to the Pantheon during the day and it was empty and it was beautiful. Oh, wow. Frankly, I tend, since many years, I tend to already make the choice to go to whatever museum or art place or space where there is not that many people. 
Right. <laughs> so it's kind of like something that I import for years. You know, in Naples, there is this museum, Capodimonte, which is a beautiful, hmm. like a Pinacotech sort of style, style museum. Okay. It used to be a palace. And, I, you know, I often go there because, like, if you go in certain times of the year, certain times of the day, it's almost completely empty. And it's mm. obviously a beautiful experience. I mean, not to, you know, it's not to be sort of like misanthropic, you know? <laughs> yeah. But of course, you know, like, obviously, when, you know, this is perhaps something to also think about the idea of huge crowds and how that needs to be, a, you know, part of the thinking in terms of like cultural or like art experiences. Right. And it would be such a huge shift because, of course, the huge crowd is exactly what, um, like I was saying before, this is exactly yeah. what, like, we want to get those numbers up. But mm-hmm. in actuality, it's intensely unpleasant mm-hmm. and it's not conducive to experiencing art. Yeah. And okay. now yeah. it's, um, yeah, it's dangerous with regards to our health. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to enforce because at the same time, you know, like, there is, there is some artworks that already, when art, artists, let's say, demand that there is only a few people at a time that experience them. You know, right. is, I'm thinking, like, for example, just the first thing that comes to mind, a few years ago I saw Jordan Wolfson's, the sort of, like, animatronic work that he did in, hmm. that was exhibited in New York. And only, I think, three or four people were allowed in. But this wasn't because of, like, the experience or, like, you know, the kind of, like, uh, contemplative experiences. It was because the software, part of the work was that the animatronic would, would, would lock eyes with, uh, hmm. with people in the room. Okay. So it was only able to search for, let's say, two or three or four, I don't remember, like pairs of eyes. So it couldn't handle more. So you couldn't have a crowd inside because of that specific technical reason. I see. You know, so for example, that was an interesting moment. But, you know, it's also very annoying to queue or to, you know, it's it's not a, a very good experience to, to have that kind of uh, charged weight for this kind totally. of for this kind of thing. So Yeah, and also the kind of the way that that kind of thing can present maybe like a an illusion of scarcity or an illusion yeah, exactly. of like a pre- of prestige and and ac- access being controlled. Yeah, we used to those queues outside like uh, you know shops and things like that. Right. So it feels very much what you're saying like it feels like it's more related to an idea of scarcity than an idea of like preserving an experience. When I was in school, I, one of my last my, my thesis project was to design a, a church, a huge church. <laughs> really? For example, that's something I always do when I travel: is to enter churches if I travel, yes. you know, whatever in the in the in Italy or in Europe or in this kind of where where this <laughs> maybe kind of this is the Italian in you. Yeah, no, completely. It's Italian <laughs> in me, but it's also I mean, just in terms of speciality. I mean, I'm not yes. I'm not religious, so I don't really care for the for the church as a kind of like religious space but just in terms of like the kind of transcendental experience of space and how this kind of like non-secular approach to design might actually function and the fact that these churches or religious spaces in general i mean i haven't traveled so much so i've actually only traveled in the mostly in the western world so i've only experienced uh, this kind of uh, these type of spaces in the western world which are spaces of let's say contemplation it's also uh, you know it's a kind of a Gesamtkunstwerk, sometimes, often churches. You know, they have paintings, they have, you know, they have their design spaces by architects or whatever. They have, mm-hmm. like, uh, craft, form of, forms of crafts. They're kind of, like, very immersive experiences. And, you know, they're, they're always available in cities. You know, you can walk into, I mean, just as a spatial experience, 
as an experience also perhaps of art in some sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, if you remove the more strict religious uh, connotation, uh, as a spatial experience, I think it's super powerful. I think that like one of the more powerful experiences with art, I guess mm-hmm. I could say, was the first time I visited uh, Sagrada Familia in, um, mm-hmm. in Barcelona. I think mm-hmm. that's really the only time in my life where I have been genuinely like f- moved, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I mean, um, I can I can relate to that oh, maybe because of the deformation, but obviously yeah. for me the most the most kind of uh, the biggest emotional and powerful powerful experiences I have are the ones with like spatial experiences or architecture. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like I was talking to a friend of mine about Le Corbusier's um, uh, monastery in France mm. of La Tourette, which is this kind of like total artwork. You know. Yeah. It's a really powerful experience. And in fact, you know, if you think about it, a lot of, for example, I have this conversation a lot with painters because I, I find myself working a lot more closely with painters hmm. because actually a painting, even though it's a, bi- a bi-dimensional thing that goes on a, on a surface, it's a very spatial artifact. It, it, yes. it is able, it's able to completely change the space and, it's, and it provides some kind of like almost compressed spatial experience. Yeah, and it contains a space too. I mean, it, yeah, it, it contains a space. It proposes like the space beyond the surface as well. Yeah, literally. So, yeah. So, so, yeah, for example, like often it's easier for me to, for example, work with painters just because it's like two types of speciality that are parallel, but mm-hmm. never kind of come in contrast or, or fight because they have clear boundaries yeah. of, you know, how they, how they function. <laughs> So, so I've been really enjoying yeah. that because for a long time I could I couldn't actually understand painting and I and it was very like far from my understanding and, and interest. So hmm. it's only almost recently that I became more interested in it in a kind of paradoxical way because it's completely uh, you know far from a spatial practice, but it's also one hundred percent a spatial practice even more than right. uh, in a way in a sense uh, of uh, of architecture. And also because you can you can do it with much more freedom than architecture, which involves, you know, <laughs> material you know, complex material flows that often are hard to yeah. to manage and to. Yeah, know. architecture is definitely not a solitary art. No, exactly. So, so I really always envy or or look at the beauty of of being able to sit alone and like do what you want to do. But, you know, I'm I'm for example, I'm starting to want because I was always frustrated with that. I mean, I li- I love the fact that architecture is a collaborative practice. Yeah. But the fact that anything of the of an architectural scale, let's say, which let's not even talk about architecture, but architectural scale, yeah, requires such a huge amount of resources, yeah. and people and labor. It's mm-hmm. you know it can be very uh, limiting. Mm, one of the last things I did in in actually in Brussels, in or outside Brussels in Leuven. Mm-hmm. I actually built it partially myself. Oh, did you? Which which was the first time that I've done this. Yeah, I was. I you know I, I hired like some workers, and I was just yeah. part of the team of workers. So we together uh, built it because I couldn't have done it by myself because it was quite large and the bricks yeah. were quite heavy. Yes. <laughs> and now I'm kind of you know I'm planning this uh, this group show in my in my space, and I'm designing and I'm I'm, I'm building more than designing because I'm actually not designing it. I'm just doing it. I'm not like, hmm. I don't have a project before. So I'm just going to get the, the blocks and build it on the on the spot, let's say. And okay. I'm kind of wanting to exp- explore more that dimension 
Is it like your um, your fountainhead moment of like going into the quarry and I don't know? Have you read that book? <laughs> you know, you know what? Actually, I need to confess that I was I I never read the book because I was okay. also so you know put off by everything that I of heard course. about the book. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. I mean, yes, and 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 all of that stuff. But yeah, there is something very like. There's something very sexy about that character and he like, uh-huh. you know, issues the whole architectural world because they won't listen to him about like cool, clean lines. And he goes to yes. work as a, as a laborer in the quarry. And then that I gives really, him I, I, his like, deeply awkward. <laughs> he really should. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, except I don't go in the quarry. It's more like, it's more like the, the satisfaction of like, <laughs> being able to have on the means of production of my work honestly yeah yeah sure so let's not, not like, go crazy let's not go crazy let's not go crazy <laughs> 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 no but seriously i mean you know no I have, yeah. I have a friend of mine like one of my closest collaborators is like always you know she always finds herself like close to architects even though she's like her background is literature and psychology oh interesting and she's always making fun of this because she knows like you know we discuss a lot i i very much in my work in my life i had to confront this aspect of architecture being this super like masculine and often egotistic practice yeah and me as a queer person like how i've had to negotiate that yeah and how i've had to kind of like also how i'm i was always more fascinated by the by what in architectural theory has been historically recognized as like the female practices of like spatial female spatial practices which have to do for hmm. example with interiors with like you know, textiles or things that have to do with care and inhabitation. And, uh, you know, which kind of like trumps the idea of like the architecture hero, which is something that I'm deeply, (laughs) deeply, deeply, uh, you know, horrified, (laughs) not not horrified, but, you know, like kind of, I question a lot because, I mean, maybe it is a part of, of, of of anyone who goes through that kind of education that is kind of implanted in you. But I always found like a conflict with that. So in yeah, a way, like, I mean, I, I'm going to read the Fountainhead because I, mean, <laughs> I guess it's like it's a required reading at this point. But, you know, I mean, I would recommend reading the Fountainhead as though you're reading a romance novel. Like it's a real right. it's a real bodice ripper in that regard. Mm-hmm. But I think that also I was just thinking the other day if I was ever going to teach if I was ever going to teach my God mm-hmm. um, <laughs> artists, I would want them yes. to read the fountainhead and I would yes. want them to read the dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin mm-hmm. because it's that kind of, it, it's the exact opposite of the fountainhead idea. It's mm-hmm. somebody who is seeking to share and be influenced and influence in turn. Um, but who cannot avoid I think maybe maybe kind of like what you're describing, it's like when you enter into a situation where the the dynamics are such that you will be placed in the role of a hero, you cannot avoid being placed in that role. Or mm-hmm. or you have to constantly make decisions that will yeah. counteract that. Yeah, this is I mean, this is completely something that I encounter a lot actually. Because hmm. when people when people actually address you as the architect, right. they have this kind of like you know, this prejudice almost of like how your sort of like psychological disposition might be. Yes, absolutely. Which for me, it's actually not that. I mean, it's 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 maybe partially that, but it's also very much not that. So, for example, I like actually to work collaboratively. I like to to listen to people. I like to, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, I, mm-hmm. I, I very much, you know, try to get away from the kind of totemic, figure of the architect in its in its sort of like a metaphysical uh, uh, definition 
yeah, because you know, I, I I could never I never kind of felt the need to sit down and design my kind of heroic form, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like I yeah. never cared to do that. And like it's because also the I mean, the people that I studied with, the people that I consider my mentors, the people that I look up to in the past, it's like mm-hmm. somehow intuitively, I always looked up to people that actually did not care for that and mm. and kind of like were more, let's say, try to find a synthesis of a context and of a situation and try to respond in the most generous way possible in the most like um, responsive way, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so when it comes to art, it's very much like, you know, I can only do that even more because of like the richness that it's in artworks and the, there is, there is a world inside these things. And it's always kind of like amazing to be confronted with, with those worlds and to like find a home for them, let's say. Yeah. You know? Well, it sounds to me like you don't, uh, like you don't feel like all of this is going to go away. It's not crashing down. Well, I mean, part of, Part of it is wishful thinking, I guess. Right. Were we just doing a little bit of fantasizing about like... <laughs> fantasizing about future art <laughs> in the new yeah. world. In the new world. But, uh, or we were imagining that we were still in a place where that all that might still be possible. Yeah, no, but, you know, at the end of the day, I, you know, one could say like the need for inhabiting yeah. and the need to make art and to exercise the creative uh, spirit of the human being will never chase to be to be and to exist so actually whatever happens and you know i was also thinking like in terms of the role of like artists architects whatever creative practitioners intellectual workers and so on yeah in this situation it's like you know this is what's going on it's it's actually a big collective trauma and actually Mm -hmm. and you know the, the human brain when there is a trauma works with with creativity to overcome the trauma i think the 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 creative power individual and collective is required to kind of like step up in a way so in a way i have have higher hopes actually for after the flood you know (laughs) moments the podcast is edited by jacob irish features original music by kyle mccray and assistant production from mitra shiram We would like to thank Alessandro Bava for his contribution to this season. If you'd like to inquire about advertising opportunities or other forms of support, please contact me, skygooden, at momus.ca.